Thanks for joining with us today. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. If you are new here, I want to add my welcome to Aaron's and say thanks for gathering with us. Um, Hopefully, um, you will be able to fill out a little welcome card, take it back to the Resource Center, give that to someone. We'd love to give you a free book after the service and just as a way to bless you and say thanks for being with us. If you have any questions about the church as well, someone will be out there to help answer any questions you might have. Um, Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. We have been going through the letter to the Corinthians, but today we're taking a pause just for today as we were considering the things going on in the world around us. And Aaron and I were talking about how this is a unique time when people are tempted to fear. It's a unique time when people are tempted to worry and there's temptations of anxiety. I I love the that Aaron shared at the beginning. We don't need to wonder if God is for us because he's given his life for us. And then the communion's reminder that we have his eternal life. And, and then, uh, like how Melianne was sharing, the hope that we have, that, that God is for us and, and no one can be against us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on the hope that we have. We're going to focus on where is the grounds for our hope. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's read God's holy inspired word together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's inspired word. Let's pray for his blessing. God, thank you that you promise that your word will not return void to you. That your word bears fruit and grows. God, I pray that your word would bear fruit in our hearts. Lord, where anxiety has taken root, I pray you would uproot that with the faith that is in you. God, where worry and fear has crept in into the soil of our hearts. Lord, I pray you would, you would get rid of those seeds of worry and doubt. And Lord, I pray that you'd replace them with the hope that we have in you. God, we, we need to see you. May we look up and see you. May we see you, God, our great Father. May we see your mercy. May we see your salvation. And God, I pray that that, that would cause joy inexpressible in our hearts. Lord, help us do all of this by your Holy Spirit. Lord, both for me who proclaims it and for all of us who listen to your word, may we respond with joy in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, this past Thursday, just after Russian forces invaded Ukraine, there was a pastor, and I'm going to get his name pronunciation wrong, but Vasil Ostriy of the church, Irpin Bible Church in Kyiv, Ukraine. He wrote in an article entitled, To Stay and Serve, Why We Didn't Flee Ukraine. I don't normally read entire articles, but I think it's helpful to get some background to show the kind of hope that Christians can have in the midst of troubles. He writes, in recent days, the events from the book of Esther have become real to us in Ukraine. It's as if the decree is signed and Haman has the license to destroy an entire nation. The gallows are ready. Ukraine is simply waiting. Can you imagine the mood in society where gradually, day after day, for months, the world's media has been saying that war is inevitable? That much blood will be shed. In recent weeks, nearly all the missionaries have been told to leave Ukraine. Western nations evacuated their embassies and citizens. Traffic in the capital of Kyiv is disappearing. Where did the people go? Oligarchs, businessmen, and those who can afford it are leaving, saving their families from potential war. Should we do the same? My wife and I have decided to remain in our city near Kyiv in anticipation of coming disaster. We've bought a supply of food, medicine, and fuel so that if necessary, we'll be able to help those in need rather than burden them. Ours is a family of six. We're raising four daughters. The local media is recommending we pack emergency suitcases. I told my children, pack your backpacks. Pack enough for three days. In the past, he says, such packing meant we were going on vacation or a fun trip. So our younger children, six and eight, have been asking, Dad, where are we going? At first, I didn't know what to answer. I told them, we're not going anywhere. How should the church respond when there's a growing threat of war? When there is constant fear in society? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. We believe the church is a place of spiritual struggle. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to bring our request to God. For three days in a row, the lights were turned off in the city. We were forced to meet in the dark, adding a solemn atmosphere to our prayers for peace. At the end of the week, those moments produced in us an inner strength to persevere. Through communal prayers, we've gained confidence and peace. We believe God is with us, and that is the most important thing. During this critical moment, our church is also a place of service. We've conducted trainings to perform first aid. People are learning how to apply tourniquets, stop bleeding, apply bandages, manage airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. In fact, when I first announced the first aid training, one brother told me, now I know why I needed to stay in Ukraine. He planned to leave, but he wants to stay now to help the wounded and save lives. If necessary, church premises can be turned to a shelter. We have a good basement. We're ready to deploy a heating station, as well as provide a place for a military hospital. To make this reality, we're creating response teams. He goes on to some of the details they've, they've gotten together to, to figure out where the doctors and mechanics and plumbers and wells were in case of water shortage. He says, we decided to stay both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kyiv will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And while the church may not fight like the nation, I would add that the church is not called to do that, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. While we may feel helpless in the face of such crisis, we can pray like Esther. Ukraine is not God's covenant people. But like Israel, our hope 
is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. How do you have that kind of hope? How do you have that kind of hope with real physical enemies? You might be wondering, how do you have that kind of hope when you face enemies and trials and tests and persecutions in your life? We don't have enemies at our door in the same way, but often many of us face all kinds of enemies in our life, all kinds of troubles and trials and difficulties in our life and persecution. How do you have that kind of hope? I'd love what he refers to as the unshakable hope of Christ in the gospel. And that's what the apostle Peter is writing to a church who is in exile about. Peter is writing to a church that has been dispersed all throughout Asia Minor. They they are homeless. Upon threat of death, they left their homeland, they scattered, they went to wherever they felt it could be safe. They were homeless. They didn't have the safety nets of their family and regular jobs. They didn't have a retirement. They didn't have some of the things that that we take for granted today. They, They were dispersed all throughout the area, and they were exiles, and they were facing various kinds of real persecutions and trials. This was most likely during the time of Nero when persecution was ramping up. Most of us don't face that kind of persecution. We do face all kinds of trials. We do face various trials. And and, and especially when we see in the world around us, we might be wondering, what in the world is going on? When you see the political systems, when you see financial instability, when you see the world on the brink, potentially, of war, and you wonder what's going on, how can we have hope? And you begin to have nervousness and anxiety can creep in, and if you find yourself like me this past week, I had to actually repent and say, you know, God, I've actually been reading the news more than focusing on you. I've been reading all these headlines all over the place. Instead of saying, where, where, where is the headline? Where is the main source of truth for me? And so the main source of truth that we have that Peter writes us to us about is our, our sure and lasting eternal hope. You know, we can become anxious. Our gaze can, can become transfixed on things around us. You ever have that problem where you just you lose sight of what's really true because you see all these things around you that seem to be true? We, we, can, we can look at the troubles of the world, the state of affairs and the economy and politics or war, rumors of war, and we can lose sight of the hope that we have as those who've been born again to the resurrection of Jesus. That is what needs to ground us. That's our anchor. That's our hope. So let me ask you, where's your gaze today? Where is your hope? Where's your gaze been? Where's your gaze need to be? This morning, I believe God wants to remind us that we can rejoice In the midst of various trials, we can rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We don't pretend, but we rejoice because we have a hope that is not pretend. We have a hope that is sure, a hope that is true. Let's not lose sight of our lasting hope. Christian, if you've been grieved by various trials, and I know many of you have been going through different trials in the church. You have trials, difficulties with family, illnesses, financial hardships. God wants us to remind us of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And when we receive from this passage that we can actually rejoice. That's the, this is the really overarching idea of this passage, that, that we can rejoice because God has given us hope and guards our hope. God has given us hope. He's, he's caused us to be born again. He's given us hope. And then he guards our hope. Because you know what? We need that, don't we? 
We need the surety that comes from knowing that, that this hope did not come from us. We didn't create this. It wasn't self-generated. Hope has been given to us by God. And then we also need the surety of knowing that this hope is protected. It's guarded. This is, there's nothing that can harm or take away the hope that we have. Not anything out there or anything in here can remove the very precious promise of the living hope that we have in Christ. Did you notice how Peter begins? He begins the passage by, by doing something that must have at first seemed strange to them. He says to the exiles, he writes in the first two verses, and he's writing to exiles, but then he immediately after, he talks about the fact that they're exiles, he says, he says blessed be God. And if you're a group of exiles, you might not feel there's great cause to bless God. And Peter says, oh no, don't lose sight of the fact there's great cause to bless God. And then he explains why. Look down your Bibles. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is over all. He is, he is over our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of all. And then he says, according to his great mercy, he's to be blessed because he's God over all. He's God of our Lord, the one who rules and reigns. And then he is the God who gives us great mercy. Peter knows that they need to praise God in the midst of their exile. They need to praise God for who he is, for his mercy. They need to be reminded of those truths. How about you? Do you need to be reminded of the fact that God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has given you and I great mercy? Because for those who believe in Jesus Christ, his mercy has been given to us and he has caused us to be born again. And that's what we can hang on to in troubled times. It is our anchor. And so Peter goes on really to tell them the, this anchoring truth, the first anchoring truth that he draws their attention to is the fact that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And it isn't great to know that this cause didn't originate with us. It doesn't say that we caused ourselves to be born again. That would be just as absurd to think that we caused our own birth naturally. And that's what he's drawing attention to. No, God, God's the father. And just like an earthly father is the cause of an earthly birth, the origination of that at least. So he says God is this wonderful father and he is the cause of us being born. He's the cause of us being born again. All humanity had been born into Adam's sin and corrupted, defiled, tainted by sin and unable to escape the wrath that we deserve. And it says, yet according to his great mercy. Did you notice it doesn't say according to your great works, according to your ability to hold on, according to your merit, according to how you were born, according to your wisdom and understanding, according to your faithfulness? No, it says according to his great mercy. And isn't that good news this morning? It's good news that it's not according to our merit or even our ability to believe enough. It's not according to our, our birthright. It's not according to how steady we are, how much we understand. It's according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Christian, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been born again. And you can be sure that it's his causing that's happened that. This isn't something you came up with or created on your own. He has recreated you. He has made you born again. And he tells us something else. He says it's a living hope. You need to hang on that word for a second. It's, it's our living hope. And what's the opposite of, being living, of, of living? 
Say it out loud. What's the opposite of living? Death, dying. He says, no, we're not like that. We don't have a hope that's dead. We don't have a hope that lies in the past alone. We don't have a hope that's dependent upon us and and our failings. We don't have a hope that relies on our health or what's going on in the world. We don't have a hope that relies on this earthly life that will one day fade and for all of us will pass away. No, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. Our hope is always alive. You know why? Because our hope is in one who is living. He says we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. All of us were once hopeless. And you might have come in this morning with a little bit of hopelessness. You need to hear these words. No, we've been born again and we have a living hope. All of us can find hope in knowing that Jesus, he became an exile. Peter's writing to exiles. And he writes about the one who became an exile. He left his home. He left his comforts. He left everything. And he lived like an exile on the earth. He didn't have a place to rest his head, a permanent home. He was an exile. He was rejected. He was despised. He was abused. He was mistreated. And, and yet, Jesus, he took all of our punishment for our sins. He died on the cross for us, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus, I mean, Peter says that Jesus was resurrected to life. He says, we have been born again to a living hope. Look in verse two, three, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus was resurrected, all of us who have placed our faith in him were resurrected to the same living hope in him, even though you don't see it right now. It's the kind of hope that comes with the assurance of an eternal inheritance. Peter says we've been born again to this living hope, this this resurrection hope. And this resurrection hope, it it comes with something. It comes with this guarantee, this, this guaranteed inheritance. This eternal inheritance that we've already received the benefits from. You know, that just like a life insurance policy you begin to draw on early. He says we have this inheritance, this eternal inheritance. And it's one that's kept safe in the bank of heaven. It's not one that we have to worry about. Your money might run out. We're never promised. We're not promised that our money won't run out. We're not promised complete safety. We're not promised stability in the world around us. And and actually far from that, Jesus says, in this world you have many what? Trials, tribulations, tests. He says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You're not promised stability politically. You're not promised a country here. You're promised a true and lasting country. And we have this hope that no one can kick us out of our true home. No one can take away your citizenship in heaven. And your inheritance is imperishable, he says. Now, what does it mean to be imperishable? It means unable to be killed. Unable to be destroyed. It can't die. You have a hope and an inheritance that cannot be killed because it doesn't rest with you. It's kept for you. Robert Louis Stevenson, he once wrote a poem called When the Stars Are Gone, and it gets at this truth. He says, the stars shine over the mountain, the stars shine over the sea, the stars look up to almighty God, the stars look down on me. The stars shall last a million years, a million in a day, but God and I will live in love when the stars have passed away. 
I don't know if he was a believer or not, but it sure seems like that was his hope. When the stars have passed away, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, unable to be killed. It, what does it matter what anyone might do to us? Because no one can kill our living hope that's secure in Christ Jesus. And then he says something else. It's not just imperishable. It's undefiled. That's really good news for me. You know, every day, sin defiles. But he says your inheritance is undefiled. This living hope and the inheritance that you will receive fully, that we've begun to get the down payments on, that we'll receive fully. He says your inheritance is completely imperishable and it's completely undefiled. It is not polluted or corrupted or defiled by sin. You know, this whole world systems and all that it's in it has been defiled and polluted by sin. Sometimes it's hard to imagine. I don't know if you, about you, but sometimes it is hard to imagine a world that's undefiled by sin. Can you imagine that? A world undefiled by sin? No corruption, no greed, no sinful lust, no abuse, no deceit, nobody betraying. Sin has defiled all of humanity apart from Christ. And that stain of sin, it seems impossible to wash away. You know, Shakespeare, he captured that idea in his play Macbeth when he's, he is giving us this picture of, of Macbeth and how he had hoped that somehow Duncan, the king, would die so he could become king, but instead he takes matters into his own hands and, and he kills Duncan. But he can't wash away his guilt and it eats at him. Towards the end of the play, he says, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? He says, No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. He's lamenting the fact that all the oceans in the world, they wouldn't be capable of washing the blood stained hands that he has. Instead, he says that his hands make all the seas red. We might not be guilty of actual murder, but all of humanity is defiled by sin, unable to wash ourselves clean, and yet we have a resurrection hope that proves that we have been washed clean. And we are undefiled, even though sin still remains. Before God, we're completely undefiled. We've been made righteous. That's our surety. And that inheritance, that righteousness, that undefiled righteousness is kept in heaven for you. It's unfading. You know, pictures fade. Memories fade. Strength fades. Our hope and inheritance is unfading. It's kept by God for us, and no one can take us from his hand. Not only do we have a, a living hope that secures our eternal inheritance, he also draws our attention to the fact, this anchoring truth that he wants these exiles to hang on to, that, that we as exiles are to hang on to as well, is that God's power, his power forever guards. God's power, it forever guards us through faith in our living hope. God's power forever guards you. That's good news. 
I'm unable to guard my own mind. I'm unable to guard my thoughts. I'm unable to guard my attention. I'm able to guard sometimes the anxieties and fears. I'm unable to guard and keep safe in some ways. The good news is, is your salvation, your living hope is kept securely in heaven. It is guarded by, not by your power, but by God's power. The same God who spoke eternity into existence, who spoke and there was light, who spoke and created, who cannot be thwarted, whose purposes prevail, who Jesus tells us that he holds us in his hand and no one can open his hand. He says that God, his power, guards you. That's good news. You know, I have very little power on my own. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I realize that. And then physically, I'm getting weaker. I don't like that. I don't like to admit that. I don't like to admit that there's arthritis and things have broken and ripped and torn that won't on this planet be healed. And do you ever feel powerless? Do you ever feel powerless? Anybody here ever feel powerless at all? To guard, to keep your hope? Here's the good news. He says that it is God's power. If you are in Christ, you are those who, by God's power, are being guarded. It's not that you will be guarded one day, but you are being guarded currently. Right now, you are, by God's power, being guarded. That's really good news. What does that mean? If you are being guarded by God, there is no force, no political entity, no financial difficulties, no illness, no troubles that can get through the guard of God. Your salvation is guaranteed. Those exiles in Asia Minor must have felt vulnerable. He says, oh, you're guarded. You are actively being guarded. And so as Peter speaks this word of comfort, he speaks this word of peace, and he says, you by God's power are being guarded. It's this picture of standing in the middle of a fort while there's enemies without assaulting, and yet God's power is surrounding the whole perimeter of the fort. You who by God's power are being guarded. God guards us for ultimate salvation. He says, and it's ready to be revealed in when? In the last times. You might not see it here. And so we need to actually remember that. You might not see it here, but it will be seen. It will be revealed fully in the last times. But you're not going to see it fully now. It, it is ready to be revealed. It is standing ready, waiting. All of creation is just waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. God guards us to the end. There's no end to the guarding of God. Our salvation has been received, but our, our complete salvation, the, the receiving of all the blessings of salvation, the, the complete removal of all, of all of the effects of sin in this world, it will not be revealed until the end, but it will be revealed. The future is already written. The, the battle is already won. It's not uncertain. It's ready it's already done. It's ready to be revealed. And so he guards us through faith for the salvation that will be made sight in the last time. This first century church, they knew what it meant to be grieved by various trials. That's what he talks to them about. He says, although you've been grieved by various trials, varying means of testing and temptation and persecution and trials... 
Things were uncertain for them. Many of them lost their homes, their, their businesses, their livelihood. They were unfamiliar territory, unfamiliar place. They didn't have power over what was happening around them. They weren't even allowed to, to be a part of the political systems around them. And the political systems around them were all in upheaval in the first century. It was a mess. They were mistreated and persecuted and abused. Their homes, their families were in jeopardy. They were sick. They watched their loved ones die. But Peter writes to them and says, Now you have this sure and living hope and is guarded by God and is ready to be revealed. It's an inheritance that will never be taken away. Although you are grieved, he says in, in verse 6, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. And he tells them there's a purpose in that. This, their, their testings are not purposeless. Their testings and trials are not without a purpose. They won't, won't see it. They don't understand it. But the trials serve a purpose. They're not pointless. I love the picture I was reading, uh, David, a guy named David Helm, he, he wrote in a commentary in this verse, he says, a picture from ancient Roman times shows the method by which grain was threshed. I think we have three different pictures there. So this is the first picture here of an ox being pulled, and there's this, this board that, that had these little knives and rough bumps on them that would go over the grain. And, and, and that this was from a ride over in this, this crude dray equipped with, with these, these knives sharp stones, and they would grind over these recently tossed sheaves, and, and the stones and iron, they help separate the husk from the grain. I think the next picture shows a picture of that, and then that's the bottom of that, and then a close-up, I think, is in the next one. They grind over these tossed sheaves, and they help separate the, the husk from the grain, and so this simple cart, uh, cart it was called a tribulum. And that's the, the same kind of word that he uses. He says, although you've been grieved by various tribulations, it came from that word tribulum. Oh, you've been grieved in that way, painfully at times. It's that picture, that graphic imagery. You've been grieved by various tribulations, tribulum. You ever feel like you're under that inescapable weight and force of that tribulum? Peter wants to remind you that no thresher ever operated his tribulum for the purpose of tearing up his sheaves. And that's what he says to the church. There is a plan. There is a purpose. God has not allowed testing, tribulation, and trials purposelessly. He, he plans to refine. Viewed that way, it helps us understand that, that trials have a purpose it's important to remember when we undergo various trials, it's not without purpose. It's so that. Look, at, look down your Bible. So that. Look in verse 7. So that. Here's the purpose of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that, that kernel that can be released. Or he says more precious than gold. Although gold perishes when it's tested by fire, when it's refined, when gold is put into a refinery, it's tested by fire. It's not for the purpose of getting rid of the gold. It's, it's to purify that gold. And he says, so the purpose of our testing, of our trials, of our temptations, of the things around us, when we are put into a refiner's fire or under a tribulum, it's not because God is angry or somehow punishing you. It's, no, it's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise 
and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a glorious day when we can say we, by God's grace, withstood trials and temptations and doubts and fears because God was keeping us and he was guarding us and his guarding, it testifies of of the beauty of his redemptive power, his ability to keep us, his ability to purify us and make us more like Jesus. And after all, isn't that the whole point of the Christian walk? In Romans 8, it tells us really that, that he's conforming us to his image. We can be sure that if our Savior went through trials, it wasn't because God was unhappy with him. Jesus was tested and tempted in every way. He went through trials and tribulations and ultimately put to death. But it wasn't because God was unhappy with Christ, his son. Trials refine us so that the tested genuineness of our faith shows off God's grace and his ability to keep us to the end. It shows that he is able to keep us faithful, to guard us to the end. You know, synthetic diamonds, they're not worth much in comparison to the genuine article. A gold-plated ring might look like a real gold ring because the outside layer looks great, but the only way to really tell if it's genuine is to scrape away that top layer to melt it down. It can be passed off as a fake if it's a thin layer, but you know what trials do? They solidify us. They purify us. They burn away all those things and help us see God, help us rest in God, trust in God, look to him in faith and hope. Suffering and trials might grieve us, but they're for our good so that our genuine faith can be purified and so the refiner can use us for his purposes. And you know, completely pure gold, it can be stretched really, really thin. It can be used for all kinds of means, all kinds of purposes, and it can make many things beautiful. It's, it's this world's most enduring standard for wealth. It's one of the most lasting material possessions. And he says, yet even gold will perish in the world to come. But he says something here that is really amazing. He says, the tested genuineness of your faith, it's, it's, not, it's, it's greater than this gold that will perish. And the inference is, because you have a living faith, because you have a living hope that will never perish. And then he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Our tests are guaranteed to have a good outcome. You know, my, one of my daughters is studying for the SATs. I hated that when I was a kid. I actually never studied for it, and I took it once. I, didn't, I did badly and never knew to study. But, you know, um, my kids have learned from my mistakes, and so they're studying. But they don't look forward to it because the outcome's not guaranteed. Could you imagine, though, if we are guaranteed a 1600 on the SAT. Um, how would that change your perspective? If you're like, I'm gonna try hard, I'm gonna work at this thing, but I already have a guaranteed 1600. It kind of free you up. It would give you, instead of this heaviness going into the test and this dread and this anxiety, it would give you a sense of like, hey, I've got hope. Because if I, I'm gonna try my best here, but you know what, 1600. It would cause some rejoicing, some joy. And, and Peter's giving us something that's even better than that. He says the guaranteed outcome is already sure. He says the outcome of your faith in verse 9. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls is 
a guarantee. Though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. It's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Peter writes because he knows this is certain. There will be a day when you can be sure you will obtain the outcome of your faith that God has caused. And it will be the salvation of your souls in every way. So yes, it's hard. And you go through tests, but the outcome is secure. Now, the SAT is minor in comparison to some of the tests and trials that you're going through right now. But the outcome is just as certain. I don't know what will come of the war in Ukraine. I don't know what will come of the political instability. I don't know what will come of finances. I don't know what will come of of our economy. I I have no idea. But our outcome is sure. We have a sure and lasting hope. That's where our gaze is to be fixed. Though you've not seen him, oh, you love him. If you have love, any love and affection for God that's been put there by God, and though you've not seen him, you love him, oh, that's a sign. That's, that's a down payment. That's a deposit on the fact that the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls is certain. He says, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. Do you believe in Jesus? He says, well, whoa, you can rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. You have a joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory. You will obtain the outcome of your soul, your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love that Aaron said in communion, he says, we don't have to wonder if Jesus is for us. He's given his life, and he's been resurrected now to prove that our life in him is secure. You know, it's in Matthew, I'll read uh, the end of the Lord's Supper. He says in Matthew 26, after he told him to drink of his blood, which is the covenant poured out for many by the forgiveness of sins, in verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day. When I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, there's no uncertainty of all of those who have participated in communion with Christ, all of those who have eaten of his body, who have put our faith in his blood that's washed away all of our sins. There is no doubt he will eat and drink it new with us in our Father's kingdom. Though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Where's your gaze? What are you hoping in? We have a sure and lasting hope and we can rejoice because God has given us hope and he guards our hope forever, amen? Amen. Let's pray and have the band come up, and we're going to sing our living hope.